Right on time. Hi. Hello. And welcome to Kraken's Cabin. I was thinking, will we go to the library today? Just follow me. I took the liberty of making the fire in here. The power cut, it's it's affected the whole time. So I know it's a little darker than normal, but there's still plenty of light coming in through those bay windows for me to read to you. Beautiful in here, isn't it? Just so many books on those shelves and it's hard to know where to begin. Ordering them by subject and theme. Can you imagine how long that would take to do? It's even harder to find what you're looking for. Yeah. See, you notice my uncle's portrait above the fireplace there. Imposing man, huh? From the stories I was told about him as a kid, it never felt that way when you were around him. He would laugh loudly and often. He was always sharing stories. I think we have that in common had that in common it's tough to know which terms to use if you don't want me asking what do you think about dreams friend there's so many different ideas about them are they reflections of what's going on in your life or are they echoes from an outside source trying to warn you or guide you are they from another life that you could have lived or are they just hallucinations from eating too much cheese before bedtime? Honestly, I can't decide. The reason I ask is before we start this session, I should probably tell you. I had a dream about my uncle. He was in this library, sitting in this very seat. He got up, he touched that portrait, and then he, he kind of got pulled into it he was banging on the frame from the inside. He was yelling out for help, but I had no idea what to do. I just stared as the frame filled with this black smoke and he faded from view. Since then, I kind of felt weird about being in here, but also comforted. He's close. And that portrait feels like he's watching over me and waiting for me to find him. Him that beautiful black cat snoozing by his feet. It's almost ironic. He actually named that cat Morpheus. Anyway. This has been a much longer story, and I'm not sure how much light we have, but please, make yourself comfortable, and we'll begin again. This is The Portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Chapter 5 Mother, mother, I am so happy, whispered the girl, burying her face in the lap of the faded, tired-looking woman who, with back turned to the shrill intrusive light, was sitting in one armchair that their dingy sitting room contained. I am so happy, she repeated, and you must be happy too. Mrs. Vane winced and put her thin, bismuth-whitened hands on her daughter's head. Happy, she echoed. I'm only happy, Sybil when I see you act. You must not think of anything but your acting. Mr. Isaacs has been very good to us, 
and we owe him money. The girl looked up, pouted. Money, mother? She cried. What does money matter? Love is more than money. Mr. Isaacs has advanced us fifty pounds to pay off our debts, and to get a proper outfit for James. You must not forget that, Sybil. Fifty pounds is a very large sum. Mr. Isaacs has been most considerate. He is not a gentleman, mother, and I hate the way that he talks to me, said the girl, rising to her feet and going over to the window. I don't know how we could manage without him, answered the elder woman, querulously. Sybil Vane tossed her head and laughed. We don't want him any more, mother. Prince Charming rules life for us now. Then she paused. A rose shook in her blood and shadowed her cheeks. Quick breath parted from the petals of her lips. They trembled. Some southern wind of passion swept over and stirred the dainty folds of her dress. I love him, she said simply. Foolish child, foolish child, was the parrot phrase flung in answer. The waving of crooked, false-chilled fingers gave grotesqueness to the words. The girl laughed again. The joy of a caged bird was in her voice. Her eyes caught the melody and echoed it in radiance, then closed for a moment, as though to hide their secret. When they opened, the mist of a dream had passed across them. Thin-lipped wisdom spoke at her from the worn chair, hinted a prudence, quoted from that book of Cardus whose author apes the name of common sense. She did not listen. She was free in her prison of passion. Her prince, Prince Charming, was with her. She had called a memory to remake him. She had sent her soul to search for him and had brought him back. His kiss burned again upon her mouth. Her eyes were warm with his breath. Then wisdom altered its method and spoke of appeasial and discovery. This young man might be rich. If so, marriage should be thought of. Against the shell of her ear broke the waves of worldly cunning. The arrows of craft shot by her. She saw the thin lips moving and smiled. Suddenly, she felt the need to speak. The wordy silence troubled her. Mother, mother, she cried. Why does he love me so much? I know why I love him. I love him because he is like what love himself should be. What does he see in me? I'm not worthy of him. And yet, why, I cannot tell, though I feel so much beneath him. I don't feel humble. I feel proud, terribly proud. Mother, did you love my father as I love Prince Charming? The elder woman grew pale beneath the coarse powder that daubed her cheeks, and her dry lips twitched with a spasm of pain. Sybil rushed to her, flung her arms around her neck and kissed her. Forgive me, Mother. I know it pains you to talk about our father, but it only pains you because you loved him so much. Don't look so sad. I am as happy today as you were twenty years ago. Let me be happy forever. My child, you are far too young to be thinking of falling in love. Besides, what do you know of this young man? You don't even know his name. The whole thing is most inconvenient. And really, when James is going away to Australia, and I have so much to think of, I must say that you should have shown more consideration. However, as I have said before, if he is rich... Ah, mother, mother, let me be happy. Mrs. Vane glanced at her. 
and with one of those false theatrical gestures that so often became a mode of second nature to a stage player, clasped her in her arms. At this moment, the door opened, and a young lad with rough brown hair came into the room. He was thick set of figure, and his hands and his feet were large, and somewhat clumsy in movement. He was not so finely bred as his sister. One would have hardly guessed the close relationship that existed between them. Mrs. Vane fixed her eyes on him and intensified her smile. She mentally elevated her son to the dignity of an audience. She felt sure that the tableau was interesting. You might keep some of your kisses for me, Sybil, I think, said the lad with a good-natured grumble. But you don't like being kissed, Jim, she cried. You're a dreadful old bear. And she ran across the room and hugged him. James Vane looked into his sister's face with tenderness. I want you to come out with me for a walk, Sybil. I don't suppose I shall ever see this horrid London again. I'm sure I don't want to. My son, don't say such terrible things, murmured Mrs Vane, taking up a tawdry theatrical dress with a sigh and beginning to patch it. She felt a little disappointed that he had not joined the group. It would have increased the theatrical picturesqueness of the situation. Why not, mother? I mean it. You pain me, my son. I trust that you will return from Australia in a position of affluence. I believe there is no society of any kind in the colonies. Nothing that I would call society. So when you have made your fortune, you must come back and assert yourself in London. Society, murmured the lad. I don't want to know anything about that. I should like to make some money to take you and Sybil off to the stage. I hate it. Oh, Jim, said Sybil, laughing. How unkind of you. But are you really going to go for a walk for me? That would be nice. I was afraid that you were going to say goodbye to some of your friends. To Tom Hardy, who gave you that hideous pipe. Or Ned Langdon, who makes fun of you for smoking it. It's very sweet of you to let me have this last afternoon with you. Where should we go? Oh, let's go to the park. I am too shabby, he answered, frowning. Only swell people go to the park. Nonsense, Jim, she whispered, stroking the sleeve of his coat. He hesitated for a moment. Very well, he said at last, but don't be too long dressing. She danced out of the door. One could hear her singing as she ran upstairs, her little feet pattered overhead. He walked up and down the room two or three times. Then he turned to the still figure in the chair. Mother, are my things ready? He asked. Quite ready, James, she answered, keeping her eyes on her work. For some months past, she had felt ill at ease when she was alone with this rough, stern son of hers. Her shallow, secret nature was troubled when their eyes met. She used to wonder if he suspected anything. The silence for he made no other observation, became intolerable to her. She began to complain. Women defend themselves by attacking, just as they attack by sudden and strange surrenders. I hope you'll be contented, James, with your seafaring life, she said. You must remember that it is your own choice. You might have entered into a solicitor's office. Solicitors are a very respectable class, and in the country often dine with the best of families. I hate offices, and I hate clerks, he replied. But you're quite right. I have chosen my own life. All I say is, watch over Sybil. 
Don't let her come to any harm, Mother. You must watch over her. James, you really talk very strangely. Of course I'll watch over Sybil. I hear a gentleman comes every night to the theatre and goes behind to talk to her. Is that right? What about that? You're speaking about things you don't understand, James. In the profession, we are accustomed to receive a great deal of most gratifying attention. I myself used to receive many bouquets at one time. That was when acting was really understood. As for Sybil, I don't know at present whether her attachment is serious or not, but there is no doubt that the young man in question is a perfect gentleman. He's always most polite to me. Besides, he has the appearance of being rich, and the flowers that he sends are lovely. You don't know his name, though, said the lad harshly. No, answered his mother, with a placid expression in her face. He's not yet revealed his real name. I think it is quite romantic of him. He's probably a member of the aristocracy. James Vane bit his lip. Watch over, Sybil, mother, he cried. Watch over her. My son, you distress me very much. Sybil is always under my special care. Of course, if this gentleman is wealthy, there's no reason why she should not contract an alliance with him. A trustee is one of the aristocracy. He has all the appearance of it, I must say. It might be the most brilliant marriage for Sybil. They can make a charming couple. His good looks are really quite remarkable. Everybody notices them. The lad muttering something to himself and drummed on the window pane with his coarse fingers. He just turned round to say something when the door opened and Sybil ran in. How serious you both are, she cried. What's the matter? Nothing, he answered. I suppose one must be serious sometimes. Goodbye, mother. I'll have my dinner at five o'clock. Everything is packed except my shirts, so you need not trouble. Goodbye, my son, she answered, with a bow of strained stateliness. She was extremely annoyed at the tone that he had adopted with her, and there was something in his look that made her feel afraid. Kiss me, mother, said the girl. Her flower-like lips touched the withered cheek and warmed its frost. My child, my child, cried Mrs. Vane, looking up to the ceiling in search of an imaginary gallery. Come, Sybil, said her brother impatiently. He hated his mother's affections. They went out into the flickering, wind-blown sunlight and strolled down the dreary Euston Road. Passers-by glanced in wonder at the sullen, heavy youth who, in coarse, ill-fitting clothes, was in the company of such a graceful, refined-looking girl. He was like a common gardener walking with a rose. Jim frowned from time to time when he caught the inquisitive glance of some stranger. He had that dislike of being stirred at, which comes on geniuses late in life and never leaves the commonplace. Sybil, however, was quite unconscious of the effect that she was producing. Her love was trembling and laughter on her lips. She was thinking of Prince Charming and that she might think of him all the more. She did not talk of him, but prattled on about the ship in which Jim was going to sail, about the gold he was certain to find, about the wonderful heiress whose life he used to save from that wicked, red-shirted bush ranger for he was not going to remain a sailor, or a supercargo, or whatever he was going to be. Oh no. A sailor's existence was dreadful. Fancy being cooped up in a horrid ship, the hoarse, humpbacked waves trying to get back in, and a black wind blowing the masts down, 
and turned the sails in the long, screaming rib bands. He was to leave the vessel at Pelper, bid a polite goodbye to the captain, and go off at once to the gold fields. Before even a week was over, he was to come across a large nugget of pure gold, the largest nugget that had ever been discovered, and bring it down to the coast in a wagon guarded by six mounted policemen. The bush rangers were to attack him three times and be defeated with immense slaughter. Or, no, he was not going to go to the gold fields at all. They were horrid places, where men get intoxicated and shot each other in barrooms and use bad language. He was to be a nice sheep farmer. And one evening, as he was riding home, he was going to see a beautiful heiress being carried off by a robber on a black horse and give chase and rescue her. And of course, she would fall in love with him, and he with her. They'd get married and come home and live in an immense house in London. Yes, there were delightful things in store for him. But he must be very good, not lose his temper or spend his money foolishly. She was only a year older than he was, but she knew so much more of life. He must be sure also to write to her in every meal and to say his prayers each night before he went to sleep. God was very good and would watch over him. She would pray for him too and in a few years he would come back quite rich and happy. The lad listened sulkily to her and made no answer. He was heartsick at leaving home. Yet it was not this alone that made him gloomy and morose. Inexperienced though he was, he still had a strong sense of the danger of Sybil's position. This young dandy who was making love to her could mean her no good. He was a gentleman, and he hated him for that hated him through some curious race instinct for which he could not account, and which for that reason was all the more dominant within him. He was conscious also of the shallowness and vanity of his mother's nature, and in that saw infinite peril for Sybil and Sybil's happiness. Children begin by loving their parents. As they grow older, they judge them, and sometimes they forgive them. His mother. He had something on his mind to ask of her, something that he had brooded on for many months of silence. A chance phrase that he had heard at the theatre, a whispered sneer that had reached his ears one night as he had waited at the lounge door, had set loose a train of horrible thoughts. He remembered it as if it was a lash of hunting crop across his face. His brows knit together in a wedge-like furrow, and with a twitch of pain he bit his underlip. You're not listening to what I'm saying, Jim, cried Sybil and I am making the most delightful plans for your future. Please, do say something. What do you want me to say? Oh, that you'll be a good boy and not forget us, she answered, smiling at him. He shrugged his shoulders. You're more likely to forget me than I am to forget you, Sybil. She flushed. What do you mean, Jim? She asked. You have a new friend, I hear. Who is he? Why have you not told me about him? He means you no good. Stop, Jim, she exclaimed. You must not say anything against him. I love him. Why? You don't even know his name, answered the lad. Who is he? I have a right to know. He is called Prince Charming. Do you like the name? You silly boy. You should never forget it. If you only saw him, you would think him the most wonderful person in the world. Someday you'll meet him. When you come back from Australia, you will like him so much. Everybody likes him, and I love him. I wish you could come to the theatre tonight. He's going to be there, and I am going to play Juliet. Oh, how I shall play it. 
Fancy Jim. To be in love and to play Juliet. To have him sitting there. Play for his delight. I'm afraid I may frighten the company. Frighten or enthrall them. To be in love is to surpass oneself. Per dreadful Mr. Isaacs will be shouted genius to his loafers at the bar. He has preached me as a dogma. Tonight he will announce me as a revelation. I feel it. And it is all his. His only. Prince Charming. My wonderful lover. My god of graces. But I am purr beside him. Purr. What does that even matter? When poverty creeps in at the door, love flies in through the window. Our proverbs want rewriting. They were made in winter. And it is summer now. Springtime for me, I think. A very dance of blossoms and blue skies. He's a gentleman, said the lad sullenly. A prince, she cried musically. What more do you want? He wants to enslave you. I shudder at the thought of being free. I want you to be aware of him. To see him is to worship him, and to know him is to trust him. Sybil, you're mad about him. She laughed and took his arm. You dear old Jim, you talk as if you were a hundred. Someday you'll be in love yourself, and then you'll know what it is. Don't look so sulky. Surely you should be glad to think that, though you're going away, you leave me happier than I've ever been before. Life has been hard for us both. Terribly hard and difficult, but it'll be different now. You're going to a new world, and I have found one. Here are two chairs. Come, let us sit down and we'll see the smart people go by. They took their seats amidst the crowd of watchers. The tulip beds across the road flamed like throbbing rings of fire. A white dust, tremulous cloud of our route, it seemed, hung in the painting air. The brightly coloured parasols danced and dipped like monstrous butterflies. She made her brother talk of himself, his hopes, his prospects. He spoke slowly and with effort. They passed words to each other as players at a game pass counters. Sybil felt depressed. She could not communicate her joy. Faint smile curving that sullen mouth was all the echo that she could win. After some time she became silent. Suddenly, she caught a glimpse of golden hair and laughing lips, and in an open carriage with two ladies Dorian Gray drove past. She started to her feet. There he is, she cried. Who? said Jim Vane. Prince Charming, she answered, looking after the Victoria. He jumped up and seized her roughly by the arm. Show him to me. Which is he? Point him out, I must see him, he exclaimed. But at that moment, the dupe of Berwick's foreign hand came between, and when it had left the space clear, the carriage had swept out of the park. He's gone, murmured Sybil sadly. I'd wish you'd seen him. I wish I had, for as sure as there is a God in heaven, if he ever does you any wrong, I shall kill him. She looked at him in horror. He repeated his words. They cut the air like a dagger. The people run, begin to keep. A lady standing close to her tittered. Come away, Jim. Come away, she whispered. He followed her doggedly as she passed through the crowd. He felt glad at what he had said. When they'd reached the Achilles statue, she turned around. There was pity in her eyes that became laughter on her lips. She shook her head at him. You're foolish, Jim. Utterly foolish. A bad-tempered boy. 
That is all. How can you say such horrible things? You don't know what you're talking about. You're simply jealous and unkind. I wish you would fall in love. Love makes people good, and what you said was wicked. I am 16, he answered, and I know what I'm about. Mother is no help to you. She doesn't understand how to look after you. I wish now that I wasn't going to go to Australia at all. I'm a great mind to chuck the whole thing up. I would, if my articles hadn't already been signed. Be so serious, Jim. You're like one of the heroes of those silly melodramas Mother used to be so fond of acting in. I'm not going to quarrel with you. I have seen him and... To see him is perfect happiness. We won't quarrel. I know you would never harm anyone I love, would you? Not as long as you love him, I suppose, was the sullen answer. I shall love him forever, she cried. And he? Forever too. He had better. She shrank from him. Then she laughed and put her hand on his arm. He was merely a boy. At the marble arch, they hailed an omnibus, which left them close to their shabby home in Euston Road. It was after five o'clock, and Sybil had to lie down for a couple of hours before acting. Jim insisted that she should do so. He said that he would sooner part with her when their mother was not present. She would be sure to make a scene, and he detested scenes of every kind. In Sybil's own room they parted. There was jealousy in the lad's heart, and a fierce, murderous hatred of the stranger who, as it seemed to him, had come between them. Yet, when their arms were flung around his neck, and her fingers strayed through his hair, he softened, and kissed her with real affection. There were tears in his eyes as he went downstairs. His mother was waiting for him below. She grumbled at his unpunctuality as he entered. He made no answer, but sat down to his meager. Flies buzzed around the table and crawled over the stained cloth. Through the rumble of the omnibuses outside and the clatter of street cabs, he could hear the droning voice devouring each minute that was left to him. After some time, he thrust away the plate and put his head in his hands. He felt that he had a right to know. It should have been told to him before, if, as he suspected, Leaden with fear, his mother watched him. The words dropped mechanically from her lips. A tattered lace handkerchief twitched in her fingers. When the clock struck six, he got up and went to the door. Then he turned back and looked at her. Their eyes met. In hers, he saw a wild appeal for mercy, and it enraged him. Mother, I have something to ask you, he said. Her eyes wandered vaguely around the room. She made no answer. Tell me the truth. I have a right to know. Were you married to my father? She heaved a deep sigh. It was a sigh of relief. The terrible moment, the moment that night and day, for weeks and months, she had dreaded, had come at last. And yet she felt no terror. Indeed, in some measure, it was a disappointment to her. The vulgar directness of the question called for a direct answer. The situation had not been gradually led up to. It was crude. It reminded her of a bad rehearsal. No, she answered, wondering at the harsh simplicity of life. My father was a scoundrel then, cried the lad, clenching his fists. She shook her head. I knew he was not free. We loved each other very much. 
If he had lived, he would have made provision for us. Don't speak of him again, my son. He was your father and a gentleman. Indeed, he was highly connected. An oath broke from his lips. I don't care for myself, he exclaimed. But don't let Sybil. It is a gentleman, isn't it, who's in love with her? Or says he is? Highly connected too, I suppose. For a moment, a hideous sense of humiliation came over the woman. Her head drooped. She wiped her eyes with shaking hands. Sybil has a mother, she murmured. I had none. The lad was touched. He went towards her and stooping down, he kissed her. I'm sorry if I've pained you by asking about my father, he said, but I couldn't help it. I must go now. Goodbye. Don't forget that you will have only one child now to look after, and believe me, if this man wrongs my sister, I'll find out who he is, track him down, and kill him like a dog. I swear it. The exaggerated folly of the threat, the passionate gesture that accompanied it, the mad melodramatic words, made life seem more vivid to her. She was familiar with the atmosphere. She breathed more freely, and for the first time for many months she really admired her son. She would have liked to have continued the scene on the same emotional scale, but cut her short. Trunks had to be carried down, and mufflers looked after. The lodging house drudge bustled in and out. There was the bargaining with the cabman. The moment was lost in vulgar details. It was with a renewed feeling of disappointment that she waved the tattered lace handkerchief from the window as her son drove away. She was conscious that a great opportunity had been wasted. She consoled herself by telling Sybil how desolate she felt her life would now be, now that she had only one child to look after. She remembered the phrase. It had pleased her. With a threat, she said nothing. It was vividly and dramatically expressed. She felt that they would all laugh about it someday. Chapter 6 Suppose you heard the news, Basil, said Lord Henry that evening, as Hallward was shown into a little private room at the Bristol, where dinner had been led for three. No, Harry, answered the artist, giving his hat and coat to the bowing waiter. What is it? Nothing about politics, I hope. They don't interest me. There's hardly a single person in the House of Commons worth painting, but many of them would be better for the little whitewashing. Dorian Gray is engaged to be married, said Lord Henry, watching him as he spoke. Hallward started, and then frowned. Dorian engaged to be married? Impossible. It is perfectly true. To whom? To some little actress or another? I can't believe it. Dorian is far too sensible for that. Dorian is far too wise not to do foolish things now and then, my dear Basil. Marriage is hardly a thing that one can do now and then, Harry. Except in America, rejoined Lord Henry, languidly. But I didn't say he was married. I said he was engaged to be married. There's a great difference. I have a distinct remembrance of being married, but I have no recollection at all of being engaged. And I'm inclined to think that I was never engaged. But think of Dorian's birth, position... And wealth. Be a sir for him to marry so much beneath him. If you want to make him marry this girl, tell him that, Basil. He's sure to do it, then. Whatever a man does thoroughly stupid thing, it is always for the noblest of motives. I hope the girl is good, Harry. 
I don't want to see Dorian tied to some vile creature who might degrade his nature and ruin his intellect. Oh, she is better than good. She's beautiful, murmured Lord Henry, sipping a glass of vermouth and orange bitters. Dorian says she is beautiful, and he's not often wrong about things of that kind. Your portrait out of him has quickened his appreciation of the personal appearance of other people. It has had that excellent effect, amongst others. We are to see her tonight, if that boy doesn't forget his appointment. Are you serious? Quite serious. I should be miserable if I thought I would ever be more serious than I am at the present moment. Do you approve of it, Harry? asked the painter, walking up and down the room, biting his lip. You can't approve of it, possibly. It's some silly infatuation. I never approve or disapprove of anything now. It is an absurd attitude to take towards life. We're not sent into the world to air out our moral prejudices. I never take any notice of what common people say, and I never interfere with charming people do. If a personality fascinates me, whatever mode of expression that personality selects is absolutely delightful to me. Dorian Gray falls in love with a beautiful girl who acts Juliet and proposes to marry her. Why not? If he wedded Messalina, he would be nonetheless interesting. You know I'm not a champion of marriage. The real drawback to marriage is that it makes one unselfish. And unselfish people are colourless. They lack individuality. Still, there are certain temperaments that marriage makes more complex. They retain their egotism and add to it many other egos. They're forced to have more than one life. They become more highly organised. and To be highly organised is, I should fancy, the object of man's existence. Besides, every experience is of value, and, whatever one may say against marriage, it is certainly an experience. I hope that Dorian Gray will make this girl his wife, passionately adore her for six months, and then suddenly become fascinated by someone else. It'd be a wonderful study. You don't mean a single word of all of that, Harry. You know you don't. If Dorian Gray's life were spoiled, no one would be sorrier than yourself. You're much better than you pretend to be. Lord Henry laughed. The reason we all like to think so well of others is that we're all afraid for ourselves. The basis of optimism is always sheer terror. We think that we're generous because we credit our neighbour with the possession of those virtues that are likely to be a benefit to us. We praise the banker that we may all overdraw our accounts and find good qualities in the highwaymen in the hope that he'll spare our pockets. I mean everything that I've said. I have the greatest contempt for optimism. As for a spoiled life, no life is spoiled but one whose mere growth is arrested. If you want to mar a nature, you have to merely reform it. As for marriage, of course one should be silly. But there are other and more interesting bonds between men and women, and I certainly encourage them. They have the charm of being fashionable. But here is Dorian himself. He'll tell you more than I can. My dear Harry, my dear Basil... You must both congratulate me, said the lad, throwing off his evening cape with its satin-lined wings and shaking each of his friends by the hand in turn. I have never been so happy. Of course, it is sudden, all really delightful things are. And yet it seems to me to be the one thing that I've been looking for all my life. He was flushed with excitement and pleasure and looked extraordinarily handsome. I will hope you are always very happy, Dorian, said Hulbert. 
but I don't quite forgive you for not having let me know of your engagement. You let Harry know. And I don't forgive you for being late for dinner, broke in Lord Henry, putting his hand on the lad's shoulder and smiling as he spoke. Come, let us sit down and try what the new chef here is like, and then you will tell us how it all came about. There's really not much to tell, cried Dorian, as they took their seats at the small round table. What happened was simply this. After I left you yesterday evening, Harry, I dressed, had some dinner at that little Italian restaurant in Rupert Street that you introduced me to, and I went down at eight o'clock to the theatre. Sybil was playing Rosalind, and of course the scenery was dreadful, the Orlando absurd. But Sybil, you should have seen her. When she came on in her boy's clothes, she was perfectly wonderful. She wore a moss-coloured velvet jerkin with cinnamon sleeves, slim brown cross-gartered hose, a dainty little green cap with a hawk's feather caught in a jewel, and a hooded cloak lined with dull red. She'd never seemed to me to be more exquisite. She had all the delicate grace of that tangara fingering that you have in your studio, Basil. Her heart clustered around her face, like dark leaves around a pale rose. As for her acting, well, you shall see her tonight. She is simply a born artist. I sat in the dingy box, absolutely enthralled. I forgot that I was in London in the 19th century. I was away with my love in a forest that no man has ever seen. And after the performance was over, I went behind and spoke to her. As we were sitting together, suddenly there came into her eyes a look that I'd never seen there before. My lips moved towards hers. We kissed each other. can't describe to you what I felt in that moment. It seemed to me that all my life had been narrowed to one perfect point of rose-coloured joy. She trembled all over and shook like a white narcissus. Then she flung herself onto her knees and kissed my hands. I feel that I should not tell you all this, but I can't help it. Of course, our engagement is a dead secret. She's not even told her own mother. I don't know what my guardians will say. Lord Radley is sure to be furious, but I don't care. I shall be of age in less than a year, and then I can do what I like. I have been right, Basil, haven't I? To take my love out of poetry and to find my wife in Shakespeare's plays. Lips that Shakespeare taught to speak have whispered their secret in my ear. I have had the arms of Rosalind around me and kissed Juliet on the mouth. Yes, Dorian, I suppose you were right, said Hallward, slowly. Have you seen her today? asked Lord Henry. Doreen Grey shook his head. I left her in the forest of Arden. I shall find her in an orchard in Verona. Lord Henry sipped his champagne in a meditative manner. At what particular point did you mention the word marriage, Doria? And what did she say in answer? Perhaps you forgot all about it. My dear Harry, I did not treat it as a business transaction. I did not make any formal proposal. I told her that I loved her. She said that she was not worthy to be my wife. Not worthy. Why, the whole world is nothing to me compared with her. Women are wonderfully practical, murmured Lord Henry. Much more practical than we are. In situations of that kind, we often forget to say anything about marriage, and they always remind us. Holbert laid his hand upon his arm. Don't, Harry. You've annoyed Dorian. He is not like other men. He would never bring misery upon anyone. His nature is far too fine for that. Lord Henry looked across the table, 
Dorian is never annoyed with me, he answered. I asked the question for the best reason possible. The only reason, indeed, that excuses one for asking any question. Simple curiosity. I have a theory that it is always the women who propose to us, and not we who propose to the women. Except, of course, in middle-class life. But then, the middle classes are not modern. Dorian Gray laughed, tossed his head. You're quite incorrigible, Harry, but I don't mind. It is impossible to be angry with you. When you see Sybil Vane, you will feel that the man who could wrong her would be a beast. A beast without a heart. Cannot understand how anyone can wish to shame the thing he loves. I love Sybil Vane. I want to place her on a pedestal of gold and see the word worship the woman who is mine. What is marriage? An unbreakable vow. You mock at that for that. Don't mock. It is a vow that I want to make. Her trust makes me feel faithful. Her belief makes me good. When I'm with her, I read all that you have taught me. I've become different from what you've known me to be. I'm changed. And the mere touch of Sylvine's hand makes me forget you and all your wrong, fascinating, poisonous, delightful theories. And those are? asked Lord Henry, helping himself to some salad. All your theories about life, your theories about love, your theories about pleasure. All your theories, in fact, Harry. Pleasure is the only thing worth having a theory about, he answered, in a slow, melodious voice. But I'm afraid I cannot claim my theory as my own. It belongs to nature, not to me. Pleasure is nature's test, her sign of approval. When we are happy, we are always good. But when we are good, we're not always happy. Ah, what do you mean by good? cried Basil Hallward. Yes, echoed Dorian, leaning back in his chair and looking at Lord Henry over the heavy cloisters of purple-lipped irises that stood in the centre of the table. What do you mean by good, Harry? To be good, to be in harmony with oneself, he replied, touching the thin stem of his glass with his pale, fine-pointed fingers. Discord is to be forced to be in harmony with others. One's own life, that is the most important thing. As for the lives of one's neighbours, if one wishes to be a prig or a puritan, one can flaunt one's moral views about them, but they're not one's concern. Besides, individualism has really become the higher aim. Modern morality consists in accepting the standard of one's age. I consider that for any man of culture to accept the standard of his age is to form the grossest immorality. But, surely, if one lives merely for oneself, Harry, one pays a terrible price for doing so, suggested the painter. Yes, we are overcharged for everything nowadays. I should fancy that the real tragedy of the poor is that they can afford nothing but self-denial. Beautiful sins, like beautiful things, are the privilege of the rich. One has to pay in other ways but money. What sort of ways, Basil? Oh, I should fancy in remorse, in suffering, in, well, the consciousness of degradation. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. My dear fellow, medieval art is charming, but medieval emotions are out of date. One can use them in fiction, of course. But then the only things that one can use in fiction are the things that one has ceased to use in fact. Believe me, no civilised man ever regrets a pleasure, and no uncivilised man ever knows what a pleasure is. I know what pleasure is, cried Dorian Gray. It is to adore someone. 
It is certainly better than being adored, he answered, toying with some fruits. Being adored is a nuisance. Women treat us just as humanity treats its gods. They worship us, and we're always bothering us to do something for them. I should have said that whatever they asked for had first given to us, murmured the lad gravely. They create love in our natures. They have a right to demand it back. That's quite true, Dorian, cried Hallward. Nothing is ever quite true, said Lord Henry. This is, interrupted Dorian. You must admit, Harry, that women give to the men the very gold of their lives. Possibly, he sighed. But they invariably want it back in such very small change. That is the worry. Women, as some witty Frenchman once put it, inspire us with the desire to do masterpieces and always prevent us from carrying them out. Harry, you're dreadful. I don't know why I like you so much. You will always like me, Dorian, he replied. We have some coffee, you fellows. Waiter, bring coffee and fine champagne and some cigarettes. No, don't mind the cigarettes. I have some. Basil, can't allow you to smoke cigars. You must have a cigarette. A cigarette is the perfect type of a perfect pleasure. It is exquisite, and it leaves one unsatisfied. What more can one want? Yes, Dorian, you'll always be fond of me. I represent to you all of the sins that you have never had the courage to commit. What nonsense you talk, Harry, cried the lad taking a light from a fire-breathing silver dragon that the waiter had placed on the table. Let us go down to the theatre. When Sybil comes on stage, you will have a new ideal of life. She'll represent something to you that you have never known. I have known everything, said Lord Henry, with a tired look in his eyes. But I am always ready for a new emotion. I am afraid, however, that, for me at any rate, there is no such thing. Still, your wonderful girl may thrill me. I do love acting. It is so much more real than life. Let us go. Dorian, you will come with me. I'm so sorry, Basil, but there's only room for two in the brown. You must follow us in a hansom. They got up and put on their coats, sipping their coffee standing. Painter was silent and preoccupied. There was a gloom over him. He could not bear this marriage, and yet it seemed to him that better than many other things that might have happened. After a few minutes, they all passed downstairs. He drove off by himself as it had been arranged and watched the flashing lights of his little brougham in front of him. A strange sense of loss came over him. He felt that Dorian Gray would never again be to him all he had been in the past. Life had come between them. His eyes darkened and the crowded, flaring streets became blurred to his eyes. When the cab drew up at the theatre, it seemed to him that he had grown years older. Chapter 7 For some reason or another, the house was crowded that night, and the fat Jew manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, waving his fat-chilled hands and talking at the top of his voice. Dorian Gray loathed him even more. He felt as if he had come to look for Miranda had been met by Caliban. Lord Henry, on the other hand, rather liked him. At least, he declared that he did. 
and insisted on shaking him by the hand and assuring him that he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over a poet. Hallward amused himself with watching the faces in the pit. The heat was terribly oppressive, and the huge sunlit flamed like a monstrous dahlia with petals of yellow fire. The youths in the gallery had taken off their coats and waistcoats and hung them over the side. They talked to each other across the theatre and shared their oranges with the tawdry girls who sat beside them. Some women were laughing in the pit. Their voices were horribly shrill and discordant. The sound of popping of corks came from the bar. What a place to find one's divinity in, said Lord Henry. Yes, answered Dorian Gray. It was here that I found her. She is divine beyond all living things. When she acts, you will forget everything. These common, rough people with their coarse faces and brutal gestures become quite different when she's on the stage. They sit silently and watch her. They weep and laugh as she wills them to do. She makes them as responsive as a violin. She spiritualizes them, and one feels that they are of the same flesh and blood as oneself. The same flesh and blood as oneself? Oh, I hope not, exclaimed Lord Henry. He was scanning the occupants of the gallery through his opera glass. Don't pay any attention to him, Dorian, said the painter. I understand what you mean, and I believe in this girl. Anyone you love must be marvellous, and any girl that has the effect that you describe must be fine and noble. The spiritualized ones each, that is something worth doing. If this girl can give a soul to those who have lived without one, if she can create the sense of beauty in people whose lives have been sordid and ugly, if she can strip them of their selfishness and lend them tears for sorrows that are not their own, she is worthy of your adoration, and worthy of the adoration of the world. This marriage is quite right. I did not think so at first, but I admit it now. The gods made Sibylvain for you, and without her you would have been incomplete. Thanks, Basil, answered Dorian Gray, pressing his hand. I knew that you would understand me. Harry is so cynical, he terrifies me. But here is the orchestra. It's quite dreadful, but it only lasts for five minutes. And then the curtain rises, and you'll see the girl to whom I'm going to give all my life, to whom I have given everything that is good in me. Quarter of an hour afterwards, amidst an extraordinary turmoil of applause, Sibylvine stepped onto the stage. Yes, she was certainly lovely to look at. One of the loveliest creatures, Lord Henry thought, that he had ever seen. There was something of the fawn in her shy grace and startled eyes. Faint blush, like the shadow of a rose in the mirror of silver, came to her cheeks as she glanced around the crowded, enthusiastic house. She stepped back a few paces, and her lips seemed to tremble. Basil Howard leapt to his feet and began to applaud. Motionless, as one in a dream, sat Dorian Gray, gazing at her. Lord Henry peered through his glasses, murmuring, Charming, charming. The scene was the hall of the Capulet's house, and Romeo in his pilgrim's dress had entered with Mercutio and his other friends. The band, such as it was, struck up a few bars of music, and the dance began. Through the crowd of ungainly, shabbily dressed actors, Sybil Vane moved like a creature from a finer world. Her body swayed while she danced, as a plant sways in the water. 
curves of her throat were the curves of a white lily. Her hands seemed to be made of cool ivory. Yet, she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo. With few words she had to speak. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much. Which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. With the brief dialogue that follows, were spoken in a thoroughly artificial manner. The voice was exquisite, but from the point of view of tone it was absolutely false. It was wrong in colour. It took away all the life from the verse. It made the passion in it unreal. But Dorian Gray grew pale as he watched her. He was puzzled and anxious. Neither of his friends dared to say anything to him. She seemed to them to be absolutely incompetent. They were horribly disappointed. Yet they felt true zest of any Juliet is in the balcony scene of the second act. They waited for that. If she failed there, there was nothing in her. She looked charming as she came out in the moonlight. That could not be denied. The staginess of her acting was unbearable and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. She overemphasised everything that she had to say. The beautiful passage. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. Else would a maiden blush paint my cheek for that which thou hast heard me speak tonight. It was declaimed with the painful precision of a schoolgirl who has been taught to recite by some second-rate professor of elocution. When she leaned over the balcony and came to those wonderful lines, Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden. She like the lightning which doth cease to be. Ere one can say it lightens. Sweet good night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. She spoke these words as though they conveyed no meaning to her. It was not nervousness. Indeed, so far from being nervous, she was absolutely self-contained. It was simply bad art. She was a complete failure. Even the common, uneducated audience of the pit and gallery lost interest in the play. They got restless and began to talk loudly and to whistle. The Jew manager, who was standing at the back of the dress circle, stamped and swore with rage. The only person unmoved was the girl herself. When the second act was over, there came a storm of hisses, and Lord Henry got up from his chair and put on his coat. She's quite beautiful, Dorian, he said, but she can't act. Let us go. I'm going to see the play through, answered the lad, in a hard, bitter voice. I'm awfully sorry that I made you waste an evening, Harry. I apologise to you both. I do, Dorian. I should think Miss Vane was ill, interrupted Hallward. We'll come another night. I wish she were ill, he rejoined. But she seems to me to be simply callous and cold. She's entirely altered. Last night she was a great artist. This evening she is merely a commonplace, mediocre actress. Don't talk like that about anyone you love, Dorian. Love is a more wonderful thing than art. They're both simply forms of imitation, remarked Lord Henry. But do let us go. Dorian, you must not stay here any longer. It's not good for one's morals to see bad acting. Besides, I don't suppose you will want your wife to act. So, what does it matter if she plays Juliet like a wooden doll? She's very lovely. 
And if she knows as little about life she does about acting, she'll be a delightful experience. There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating. People who know absolutely everything, and people who know absolutely nothing. Good heavens, my dear boy, don't look so tragic. The secret of remaining young is never to have an emotion that is unbecoming. Come to the club with Basil and myself. We will smoke cigarettes and drink to the beauty of Sibylvine. She is beautiful. What more can you want? Go away, Harry, cried the lad. I want to be alone. Basil, you must go. Can't you see that my heart's breaking? The hot tears came to his eyes. His lips trembled and, rushing to the back of the box, he leaned up against the wall, hiding his face in his hands. Let us go, Basil, said Lord Henry, with a strange tenderness in his voice. And the two young men passed out together. A few moments afterwards, the floodlights flared up and the curtain rose on the third act. Dorian Gray went back to his seat. He looked pale, proud and indifferent. The play dragged on and seemed interminable. Half of the audience went out, tramping in heavy boots and laughing. The whole thing was a fiasco. The last act was played to almost empty benches. The curtain went down on a titter and some groans. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes to the green room. The girl was standing there alone with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire. There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him. An expression of infinite joy came over her. How badly I acted tonight, Dorian, she cried. Horribly, he answered, gazing at her in amazement. Horribly? It was dreadful. Were you ill? You have no idea what it was. You have no idea what I suffered. The girl smiled. Dorian, she answered, lingering over his name with the long-drawn music in her voice, as though it were sweeter than honey to the red petals of her mouth. Dorian, you should have understood. But you understand now, don't you? Understand what? He asked, angrily. Why I was so bad tonight. Why I shall always be bad. Why I shall never act well again. He shrugged his shoulders. You're ill, I suppose. When you're ill, you shouldn't act. You make yourself look ridiculous. My friends were bored. I was bored. She seemed not to listen to him. She was transfigured with joy. An ecstasy of happiness dominated her. Dorian, Dorian, she cried. Before I knew you, acting was one reality of my life. It was only in the theatre that I lived. I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night, Cordelia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy. The sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to be godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows and I thought them real. You came. Oh, my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the sham, the silliness of an empty pageant in which I had always played. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that the Romeo was hideous, and old, painted, that the moonlight in the orchard was false, the scenery was vulgar, and that the words I had to speak were unreal were not my words, were well, not what I wanted to say. 
you had brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection. You've maybe understood what love really is. I love, I love. Prince Charming, Prince of Life. I've grown sick of shadows. You're more to me than all art can ever be. What have I had to do with the puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought that I was going to be wonderful. But I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing and I smiled. What could they know of love such as ours? Take me away, Dorian. Take me with you, where we can be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns in me like fire. Dorian, Dorian, don't you understand now what it signifies? Even if I could do it, it would be profanation for me to play at being in love. You've made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You've killed my love, he muttered. She looked at him in wonder and laughed. He made no answer. She came across to him and with her little fingers stroked his hair. She knelt down and pressed his hands to her lips. He drew them away and a shudder ran through him. Then he leapt up and went to the door. Yes, you've cried. You've killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produced no effect. I loved you because you were marvellous. Because you had genius and intellect. Because you realised the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You've thrown it all away. You were shallow and stupid. How mad I was to love you. What a fool I've been. You're nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never even think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me. Once. Why once? Oh. I can't bear to think of it. Wish I'd never let eyes upon you. You've spoiled the romance of my life. How little you can know of love if you say it mars your art. Without your art, you're nothing. I would have made you famous, splendid, magnificent. The world would have worshipped you, and you would have borne my name. What are you now? Third-rate actress with a pretty face. The girl grew white and trembled. She clenched her hands together, and her voice seemed to catch in her throat. You're, you're not serious, Dorian, she murmured. You're acting. Acting? I leave that to you. You do it so well, he answered, bitterly. She rose from her knees, and with a piteous expression of pain in her face, came across the room to him. She put her hand upon his arm and looked into his eyes. He thrust her back. Don't touch me cried. A low moan broke from her. She flung herself at his feet and lay there like a trampled flower. Dorian, Dorian, don't leave me, she whispered. I'm so sorry I didn't act well. I was thinking of you the whole time, but I, I, I'll try. Indeed, I'll, I'll try. It came so suddenly across me, my love for you. I think I should never have known it if you'd not kissed me, if we'd not kissed each other. Kiss me again, my love. Don't go from me. And bear it. Don't go away from me. My brother. No, never mind. He didn't mean it. He was in jest. 
But you, you can't forgive me for tonight. I'll work so hard and try to improve. Don't be cruel to me because I love you better than anything in the world. After all, it is only once that I have not pleased you. But you're quite right, Dorian. I should have shown more of myself as an artist. It was foolish of me. And yet I can't help it. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Fit a passionate sobbing choked her. She crouched on the floor like a wounded thing. And Dorian Gray, with his beautiful eyes, looked down at her. And his chiselled lips curled in exquisite disdain. There's always something ridiculous about the emotions of people whom one has ceased to love. Sybil Vane seemed to him to be absurdly melodramatic. Her tears and sobs annoyed him. I'm going, he said at last, in his calm, clear voice. I don't wish to be unkind, but I can't see you again. You have disappointed me. She wept silently and made no answer, but crept nearer. Her little hand stretched blindly out and appeared to be seeking for him. He turned on his heel and left the room. In a few moments he was out of the theatre. Where he went to, he hardly knew. He remembered wandering through dimly lit streets, past gaunt, black-shadowed archways and evil-looking houses. Women with hoarse voices and harsh laughter called after him. Drunkards had reeled by cursing and chattering to themselves like monstrous apes. He had seen grotesque children huddled on doorsteps and heard shrieks and oaths from gloomy courts. As the dawn was just breaking, he found himself close to Covent Garden. The darkness lifted and flushed with faint fires. The sky hollowed itself into a perfect pearl. Huge carts filled with nodding lilies sprubbled slowly down the polished empty street. The air was heavy with the perfume of the flowers, and their beauty seemed to bring in him an anodyne for the pain. He followed into the market and watched the men unloading their wagons. A white-smocked carter offered him some cherries. He thanked them, wondered why he refused to accept any money for them, and began to eat them listlessly. They had been plucked at midnight, and the coldness of the moon had entered into them. A long, thin line of boys carrying crates of striped tulips, of yellow and red roses, defiled in front of him, threading their way through the huge, green piles of vegetables. Under the portico, with its grey, sun-bleached pillars, ordered a troop of draggled, bare-headed girls, waiting for the auction to be over. Others crowded around the swinging doors of the coffee house and the piazza. The heavy cart horses slipped and stamped under the rough stones, shaking their bells and trappings. Some of the drivers were lying asleep on a pile of sacks. Iris-necked and pink-footed, the pigeons ran about picking up seeds. After a little while, he hailed a hansom and drove home. For a few moments, he loitered upon the doorstep, looking around at the silent square with its blank, closed shuttered windows and his stirring blinds. The sky was pure opal now, and the roofs of the houses glistened like silver against it. From some chimney opposite a thin wreath of smoke was rising. It curled a violet riband through an acrid-coloured air. In the huge gilt Venetian lantern, spoil of some dog's barge, 
that hung from the ceiling of the great oak-panelled hall of entrance. Lights were still burning from three flickering jets. Thin blue pells of flame, they seemed, rimmed with white fire. He turned them out, and having thrown his hat and his cape on the table, passed through the library towards the door of his bedroom, a large octagonal chamber on the ground floor that, in his newborn feeling for luxury, he had just decorated for himself, and hung some curious Renaissance tapestries that had been discovered stored in a disused attic at Selby Royal. As he was turning the handle of the door, his eye fell upon the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him. He started back as if in surprise. Then he went on into his own room, looking somewhat puzzled. After he had taken the buttonhole out of his coat, he seemed to hesitate. Finally, he came back, went over to the picture and examined it. In the dim, arrested light that struggled through the cream-coloured silk blinds, the face appeared to him to be a little changed. The expression looked different. One would have said that there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. It was certainly strange. He turned round and, walking to the window, drew up the blind. The bright dawn flooded the room and swept the fantastic shadows into the dusky corners where they lay shuddering. The strange expression that he had noticed in the face of the portrait seemed to linger there, to be more intensified even. The quivering, ardent sunlight showed him the lines of cruelty around the mouth as clearly as if he had been looking into a mirror after he had done some dreadful thing. He winced, and taken up from the table an oval glass framed in ivory cupids, one of Lord Henry's many presents to him, glanced hurriedly into its polished depths. No line like that warped his red lips. What did it mean? He rubbed his eyes, came close to the picture, examined it again. There were no signs of any change when he looked into the actual painting, and yet there was no doubt that the whole expression had altered. It was not mere fancy of his own. This thing was horribly apparent. He threw himself into a chair and began to think. Suddenly there flashed across his mind what he had said in Basil Hallward's studio the day the picture had been finished. Yes, he remembered it perfectly. He had uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young and the portrait grew old, that his own beauty might be untarnished, and that the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins, that the painted image might be seared with the lines of suffering and thought, and that he might keep all the delicate blossom and loveliness of his then just conscious boyhood. Surely his wish had not been fulfilled. Such things were impossible. It seemed monstrous even to think of them. And yet, there was the picture before him, with a touch of cruelty in the mouth. Cruelty? Had he been cruel? It was the girl's fault, not his. He had dreamed of her as a great artist and given his love to her because he had thought her great. And then she had disappointed him. She had been shallow and unworthy. And, yet, a feeling of infinite regret came over him as he thought of her lying at his feet, sobbing like a little child. He remembered with what callousness he watched her. Why had he been made like that? Why had such a soul been given to him? But he had suffered also. During the three terrible hours of that play that had lasted, he had lived centuries of pain, eon upon eon of torture. His life was well worth hers. She had marred him for a moment, 
he had wounded her for an age. Besides, women were better suited to bear the sorrow than men. They lived on their emotions. They only thought of their emotions. When they took lovers, it was merely to have someone with whom they could have scenes. Lord Henry had told him that. Lord Henry knew what women were. Why should he trouble about Sylvine? She was nothing to him now. Picture? What was he to say of that? It held the secret of his life and told his story. It had taught him to love his own beauty. Would it teach him to loathe his own soul? Would he ever look at it again? No. It was merely an illusion wrought on by the troubled senses. The horrible night that he had pressed had left phantoms behind it. Suddenly there had fallen upon his brain that tiny scarlet speck that made men mad. The picture had not changed. It was folly to think so. Yet it was watching him, with its beautiful marred face and its cruel smile. Bright hair had gleamed in the early sunlight. Blue eyes met his own. A sense of infinite pity, not for himself but for the painted image of himself, came over him. It had altered already would alter more. Gold would wither into grey. Its red and white roses would die. For every sin that he committed, a stain would fleck and wreck its furnace. But he would not sin. The picture, changed or unchanged, would be to him the visible emblem of his conscience. He would resist temptation. He would not see Lord Henry anymore would not, at any rate, listen to those subtle poisonous theories that in Basil Hallward's garden had first stirred within him the passion of impossible things. He would go back to Sibylvine, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again. Yes, it was his duty to do so. She must have suffered more than he had. The fascination that she had exercised over him would return. They'd be happy together. His life with her would be beautiful and pure. He got up from his chair and drew a large screen right in front of the portrait, shuddering as he glanced at it. Horrible, he murmured to himself, and he walked across to the window and opened it. When he stepped out onto the grass, he drew a deep breath. The fresh morning air seemed to drive away all his sombre passions. He thought only of Sybil. A faint echo of his love came back to him. He repeated her name over and over again. The birds that were singing in the drew-drenched garden seemed to be telling that the flowers about her. Chapter 8 It was long past noon when he woke. His valet had crept several times on tiptoe into the room to see if he was stirring, and had wondered what made his young master sleep so late. Finally his bell sounded, and Victor came in softly with a cup of tea and a pile of letters on a small tray, and drew back the olive satin curtains with their shimmering blue lining that hung in front of the three tall windows. Monsieur has well slept this morning, he said, smiling. What o'clock is it, Victor? asked Orion Gray, drowsily. One hour and a quarter, Monsieur. How late it was. He sat up, but having sipped some tea, turned over his letters. One of them was from Lord Henry, had it been brought by hand that morning. He hesitated for a moment and then put it to the side. The others he opened listlessly. 
that contained the usual collection of cards, invitations to dinner, tickets for private views, programs of charity concerts and the like that are showered on fashionable young men every morning during the season. There was a rather heavy bill for a chaste silver Louis Quintez toilet set that he had not yet had the courage to send on to his guardians. There was a rather heavy bill for a chaste silver Louis Quintez toilet seat that he had not yet had the courage to send on to his guardians, who were an extremely old-fashioned people and did not realise that we live in an age where unnecessary things are our only necessities. And there were several very curiously worded communications from German Street, money lenders offering to advance any sum of money at a moment's notice and at the most reasonable rates of interest. After about ten minutes, he got up, and throwing on an elaborate dressing gown of silk-embroidered cashmere wool, passed into the onyx-paved bathroom. The cold water refreshed him after his long sleep. He seemed to have forgotten all of that he had gone through. A dim sense of having taken part in the strange tragedy came to him once or twice, but there was the unreality of a dream about it. As soon as he was dressed, he went into the library and sat down to a light French breakfast that had been let out for him on a small round table close to an open window. It was an exquisite day. The warm air seemed laden with spices. A bee flew in, buzzed around the blue dragon bowl that, filled with sulphur-yellow roses, stood before him. He felt perfectly happy. Suddenly his eye fell on the screen that he had placed in front of the portrait, and he stirred. Too cold for monsieur? asked the valet putting an omelette on the table. I shut the window. Dorian shook his head. I'm not cold, he murmured. Was it all true? Had the portrait really changed? Or had it been simply his own imagination that had made him see a look of evil where there had been a look of joy? Surely a painted canvas could not alter. The whole thing was absurd. It would serve as a tale to tell Basil someday. It would make him smile. And, yet, how vivid was his recollection of the whole thing. First in the dim twilight, and then in the bright dawn, he had seen the touch of cruelty run the warped lips. He had almost dreaded his valet leaving the room. He knew that when he was alone, he would have to examine the portrait again. He was afraid of certainty. When the coffee and cigarettes had been brought and the man had turned to go, he felt a wild desire to tell him to remain. As the door was closing behind him, he called him back. The man stood waiting for his order. Dorian looked at him for a moment. I'm not home to anyone, Victor, he said with a sigh. The man bowed and retired. Then he rose from the table, lit a cigarette, and flung himself down on a luxuriously cushioned couch that stood facing the screen. The screen was an old one, of gilt Spanish leather, stamped and wrought with a rather florid Louis Quartes pattern. He scanned it curiously, wondering if he ever before had concealed the secret of a man's life. Should he move it aside, after all? Why not let it stay there? What was the use of knowing? If the thing was true, it was terrible. If it was not true, why trouble about it? But what if, by some fate or deadlier chance, Eyes other than his spied behind and saw the terrible change. What should he do if Basil Hallward came and asked to look at his own picture? Basil would be sure to do that. 
thing had to be examined and at once. Anything would be better than this dreadful state of doubt. He got up, locked both doors. At least he would be alone when he looked upon the mask of his shame. And then he drew the screen aside and saw himself face to face. It was perfectly true. The portrait had altered. As he often remembered afterwards, and always with no small wonder, he found himself at first gazing at the portrait with a feeling of almost scientific interest. That such a change should have ever taken place was incredible to him. And yet, it was a fact. Was there some subtle affinity between the chemical atoms that shaped themselves into form and colour on the canvas and the soul that was within them? Could it be that what they thought the soul was, they realised? That what it dreamed, they made true? Or was there some other, more terrible reason? He shuddered and felt afraid. And, going back to the couch, lay there, gazing at the picture in sickened horror. One thing, however, he felt that it had been done to him. It had made him conscious how unjust, how cruel he had been to Sibylvine. It was not too late to make reparations for that. She could still be his wife. His unreal and selfish love would yield to some higher influence, would be transformed into some nobler passion, and the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him would be a guide to him through life, would be to him what holiness is to some and conscience to others and the fear of God to us all. There were opiates for remorse, drugs that could lull the moral sense to sleep. But here was a visible symbol of the degradation of sin. Here was an ever-present sign of the ruin men brought upon their own souls. Three o'clock struck, and four, and the half-hour rang its double chime, but Dorian Gray did not stir. He was trying to gather up the scarlet threads of life, and to weave them into a pattern, to find his way through the sanguine labyrinth of passion through which he was wandering. He did not know what to do, or what to think. Finally, he went over to the table and wrote a passionate letter to the girl that he had loved, imploring her forgiveness and accusing himself of madness. He covered page after page with wild words of sorrow and wilder words of pain. There is a luxury in self-reproach, when we blame ourselves that we feel that no one else has the right to blame us. It's the confession, not the priest, that gives us absolution. When Dorian had finished the letter, he felt that he had been forgiven. Suddenly there came a knock to the door, and he heard Lord Henry's voice outside. My dear boy, I must see you. Let me in at once. Can't bear yourself shutting yourself up like this. He made no answer at first, but remained quite still. The knocking still continued and grew louder. Yes, it was better to let Lord Henry in and explain to him his new life that he was going to lead, quarrel with him if it became necessary to quarrel. Part of parting was inevitable. He jumped up, drew the screen hastily across the picture and unlocked the door. I'm so sorry for it all, Dorian, said Lord Henry as he entered. But you must not think too much about it. Do you mean Sibylvine? asked the lad. Yes, of course, answered Lord Henry, sinking into a chair and slowly pulling off his yellow gloves. It is dreadful, from one point of view, but it was not your fault. Tell me, did you go behind and see her after the play was over? Yes. I felt sure you had. Did you make a scene with her? I was brutal, Harry. 
perfectly brutal. But it's all right now. I'm not sorry for anything else that's happened. It has taught me to know myself better. Ah, Doria. I'm so glad you take it that way. I was afraid that I would find you plunged in remorse and tearing that nice curly hair of yours. I've got through all of that, said Dorian, shaking his head and smiling. I'm perfectly happy now. I know what conscience is, to begin with. It's not what you told me it was. It is the divine thing in us. Don't sneer, Harry. Anymore. At least not before me. I want to be good. I can't bear the idea of my soul being hideous. Very charming artistic basis for ethics, Dorian. I congratulate you on it. But how are you going to begin? By marrying Sybil Vane. Marrying Sybil Vane, cried Lord Henry, standing up and looking at him in perplexed amazement. But, my dear Dorian. Yes, Harry, I know what you're going to say. Something dreadful about marriage. Don't say it. Don't ever say things of that kind to me again. Two days ago, I asked Sybil to marry me. I'm not going to break my word to her. She's to be my wife. Your wife? Dorian, didn't you get my letter? I, I wrote to you this morning and sent the note down by my own man. Your letter? Oh, yes, I remember. I've not read it yet, Harry. I was afraid there might be something in it that I wouldn't like. You cut life to pieces with your epigrams. You know nothing, then. What do you mean? Lord Henry walked across the room, and sitting down by Dorian Gray took both his hands in his own and held him tightly. Dorian, he said, my letter. Don't be frightened. It was to tell you that Sylvain is dead. A cry of pain broke from the lad's lips, and he leapt to his feet, turning his hands away from Lord Henry's grasp. Dead? Sybil dead? It's not true. Horrible lie. How dare you say that? Quite true, Dorian, said Lord Henry gravely. It's all in the morning papers. I wrote down to you to ask you not to see anyone until I came. There will have to be an inquest, of course, and you must not be mixed up in it. Things like that make a man fashionable in Paris, but in London, people are so prejudiced. Here, one should never make one's debut with a scandal. One should reserve that to give interest to one's old age. Suppose they don't know your name at the theatre? If they don't, it's all right. Did anyone see you going around to a room? That is an important point. Dorian did not answer for a few moments. He was dazed with horror. Finally, he stammered in a stifled voice. Harry, did you say an inquest? What, what do you mean by that? It's Sybil. Harry, I can't bear it. Be, be quick. Tell me everything at once. I have no doubt that it was not an accident, Dorian. Though it must be put that way to the public. It seems that as she was leaving the theatre with her mother, about half past twelve or so, she said that she had forgotten something upstairs. They waited some time for her, but she didn't come down again. They ultimately found her lying dead in the floor of her dressing room. She had swallowed something by mistake, some dreadful thing they use at theatres. I don't know what it was, but it had to be either prussic acid or white lead in it. I should fancy it was prussic acid, as she seems to have died instantaneously. Harry, Harry, it's terrible, cried the lad. 
Yes, it's very tragic, of course. But you mustn't get yourself mixed up in it. I see by the standard that she was 17. Should have thought she was almost younger than that. She looked such a child. Seemed to know so little about acting. Dorian, you mustn't let this thing get on your nerves. You'll come and dine with me and afterwards we'll look in an opera. It is a patty night and everyone will be there. You can come to my sister's box. She's got some smart women with her. So I've murdered Sibylvine, said Dorian Gray, half to himself. Murdered her as surely as I cut her little throat with a knife. Yet the roses are not less lovely for all of that. The birds sing just as happily in my garden. And tonight I am to dine with you and then go on to my opera and sup somewhere, I suppose, afterwards. How extraordinary dramatic life is. If I'd read all of this in a book, Harry, I think I would have wept over it. Somehow, now that it has happened, actually, and to me, it seems far too wonderful for tears. Here's the first passionate love letter that I've ever written in my life. Strange that, that my first passionate love letter should be addressed to a dead girl. Can they feel, I wonder? Those white, silent people we call the dead. Sybil. Did she feel, or know, or listen? Harry. How I loved her once. It seems years to me now. She was everything to me. Then came that dreadful night. Was it really only last night? But she played so badly and my heart almost broke. She explained it all to me. It was terribly pathetic. But I wasn't moved a single bit. I thought her shallow. Suddenly something happened that made me afraid. I can't tell you what it was, but it was terrible. I said I would go back to her. I felt I'd done her wrong. And now she's dead. God, Harry, what shall I do? You don't know the danger that I'm in. And there is nothing to keep me straight. She would have done that for me. She had no right to kill herself. It was selfish of her. My dear Dorian, answered Lord Henry, taking a cigarette from his case and producing a gold lantern matchbox. The only way a woman can ever reform a man is by boring him so completely that he loses all possible interest in life. If you had married this girl, you would have been wretched. Of course, you would have treated her kindly. One can always be kind to people about whom one cares absolutely nothing. But she soon would have found out that you were absolutely indifferent to her. And when a woman finds that out about her husband, she either becomes dreadfully dowdy or wears very smart bonnets that some other woman's husband has to pay for. I say nothing about the social mistake, which would have been abject, which, of course, I would not have allowed. But I assure you that in any case, the whole thing would have been an absolute failure. I suppose it would, muttered the lad, walking up and down the room and looking horribly pale. But I thought it was my duty. It's not my fault that this terrible tragedy has prevented my doing what was right. I remember you saying once that there's a fatality about good resolutions, that they're always made too late. Mine certainly were. Good resolutions are useless attempts to interfere with scientific laws. Their origin is pure vanity. The result is absolutely nil. They give us, now and then, some sort of luxurious, sterile emotion that has a certain charm for the weak. 
is all that can be said for them. They are simply checks that men draw on a bank when they have no account. Harry, cried Dorian Gray, coming over and sitting down beside him. Why is it that I cannot feel this tragedy as much as I want to? I don't think I'm heartless. To you? You've done too many foolish things during the last fortnight to be entitled to give yourself that name, Dorian, answered Lord Henry, with his sweet, melancholy smile. The lad frowned. I don't like that explanation, Harry, he rejoined. But I'm glad that you don't think I'm heartless. I'm nothing of the kind. I know I'm not. And yet, I must admit that this thing has happened does not affect me as it should. It seems to me to be simply like a wonderful ending to a wonderful play. It has all the terrible beauty of a Greek tragedy, a tragedy in which I took a great part, by which I have not been wounded. It's an interesting question, said Lord Henry, who found an exquisite pleasure in playing on the lad's unconscious egotism. An extremely interesting question. I fancy that the true explanation is this. It often happens that real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, the entire lack of style. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. They give us an impression of sheer brute force, and we revolt against that. Sometimes, however, a tragedy that possesses artistic elements of beauty crosses our lives. If these elements of beauty are real, the whole thing simply appeals to our sense of dramatic effect. Suddenly we find that we are no longer the actors, but the spectators of the play. Or, rather, we are both. We watch ourselves, and the mere wonder of the spectacle enthralls us. In the present case, what is it that has really happened? Someone has killed herself for love of you. I wish that I had ever had that kind of experience. It would have made me in love with love for the rest of my life. With the people who have adored me, there have not been many, many, but there have been some. They've always insisted on living on, long after I ceased to care for them, or that they care for me. They become stout and tedious, and when I meet them, they go in at once for the reminiscences. That awful memory of a woman. What a fearful thing it is. And what an under-intellectual stagnation it reveals. One should absorb the colour of life, but one should never remember its details. Details are always vulgar. I must sow poppies in my garden, sighed Dorian. There is no necessity, joined his companion. Life has always poppies in her hands. Of course, now and then things linger. I once wore nothing but violets all through one season, as a form of artistic mourning for a romance that would not die. Ultimately, however, it did die. I forget what killed it. I think it was her proposing to sacrifice the whole world for me. That is always a dreadful moment. It fills one with the terror of eternity. Well, would you believe it? A week ago, at Lady Hampshire's, I found myself seated at dinner next to the lady in question and she insisted on going over the whole thing again, digging up the past and raking up the future. I'd buried my romance in a bed of asphodel. She dragged it out again, and assured me that I had spoiled her life. I'm bound to state that she ate an enormous dinner, so I did not feel any anxiety. What a lack of taste she showed, 
The one charm of the past is that it's in the past. But women never know when the curtain's fallen. They always want another act. And as soon as the interest of the play is entirely over, they propose to continue it. If they are allowed their own way, every comedy would have a tragic end, and every tragedy would culminate in a farce. They're comically artificial, but they've no sense of art. You're more fortunate than I am, I assure you, Dorian, that not one of the women I've known would have ever done for me what Sibylvine did for you. Ordinary women always console themselves. Some of them do it by going in for sentimental colours. Never trust a woman who wears mauve, whatever her age may be, or a woman over 35 who is fond of pink ribbons. It always means they have a history. Others find a great consolation in suddenly discovering the good qualities of their husbands. They flaunt their conjugal felicity in one's face, as if it were the most fascinating of sins. Religion consoles them. It's mysteries of all the charm of a flirtation, a woman once told me, and I can quite understand it. Besides, nothing makes one so vain as being told that one is a sinner. Conscience makes egotists of us all. Yes, there's really no end to the consolations that women find in modern life. Indeed, I've not even mentioned the most important one. What is that, Harry? said the lad, listlessly. Oh, the obvious consolation. Taking someone else's admirer when one loses one's own. In good society, that always whitewashes a woman. But really, Dorian, how different Sibylvine must have been from all the women one meets. There's something to me quite beautiful about her death. I'm glad I'm living in a century when such wonders happen. They make one believe in the reality of all the things that we play with, such as romance, passion, love. I was terribly cruel to her. You forget that. I am afraid that women appreciate cruelty downright cruelty, more than anything else. They have wonderfully primitive instincts. We have emancipated them, but they remain slaves looking for their masters all the same. They love being dominated. I'm sure you were splendid. I've never seen you really and absolutely angry. I can fancy how delightful you look. And, after all, you said something to me the other day before yesterday that seemed to me at the time to be wonderfully fanciful but now I can see it was absolutely true, and it holds the key to everything. What was that, Harry? You said to me that Sybil Vane represented to you all the heroines of romance. That if she was Desmondia one night, Ophelia the other. That if she died as Juliet, she came to life as Imogen. She'll never come to life again, muttered the lad, burying his face in his hands. No, she'll never come to life. She's played her last part. But you must think of that lonely death in the tawdry dressing room simply as a strange, lurid fragment from some Jacobian tragedy. It was a wonderful scene from Webster, Ford, or Cyril Turrier. Girl never really lived. And so, she never really died. To you, at least she was always the dream. A phantom that flitted through Shakespeare's plays and left them lovelier for their presence a reed through which Shakespeare's music sounded richer and more full of joy. The moment she touched actual life, she marred it, and it marred her. And so she passed away. Mourn for Ophelia, if you like. Put ashes on your head because Cordelia was strangled. Cry out against heaven because the daughter of Barbanio has died. But don't waste your tears over Sibylvine. 
She was less real than they were. There was a silence. The evening darkened in the room. Noiselessly and with silver feet, the shadows crept in from the garden. The colours faded wearily out of things. After some time, Dorian Gray looked up. You've explained to me myself, Harry, he murmured, with something of a sigh of relief. I felt that all of you said, but somehow was afraid of it, and I could not express it to myself. How well you know me. But we will not talk again of what has happened. It's been a marvellous experience, and that is all. I wonder if life still has in store for me anything as marvellous as this. Life has everything in store for you, Dorian. But there is nothing that you, with your extraordinary good looks, will be not able to do. But suppose, Harry, I become haggard and old and wrinkled. What then? Then, said Lord Henry, rising to go. Then, my dear Dorian, you would have to fight for your victories. As it is, they are brought to you. No, you must keep your good looks. We live in an age that reads too much to be wise and that thinks too much to be beautiful. We can't spare you. And now you'd better dress and drive down to the club. We're rather late as it is. I think I shall join you at the opera, Harry. I feel too tired to eat anything. What is the number of your sister's box? 27, I believe, is on the grand tier. You'll see her name on the door. But I'm sorry you won't come and dine. I don't feel up to it, said Dorian, listlessly. But I'm awfully obliged to you for all that you've said to me tonight. You're certainly my best friend. No one has ever spoken to me and understood me the way that you have. We're only at the beginning of our friendship, Dorian, answered Lord Henry, shaking him by the hand. Goodbye. I shall see you before 9.30, I hope. Remember, Paddy is singing. As he closed the door behind him, Dorian Gray touched the bell, and in a few moments Victor appeared with the lamps and drew blinds down. He waited impatiently for him to go. The man seemed to take an interminable time over everything. As soon as he left, he rushed to the screen and drew it back. No, there was no further change in the picture. Had he received the news of Sybil Vane's death before he'd known of it himself. He was conscious of the events of life as they occurred. The vicious cruelty that marred the fine lines of the mouth had, no doubt, appeared at the very moment that the girl had drunk the poison, whatever it was. Or was it indifferent to results? Did it merely take cognizance of what passed within the soul? He wondered, and hoped that someday that he would see the change taking place before his very eyes, shuddering as he hoped it. Percival, what a romance it had all been. She'd often mimicked death on the stage, and death himself had touched her and taken her with him. How had she played that dreadful last scene? Had she cursed him as she died? No. She had died for love for him, and love would always be the sacrament to him now. She had atoned for everything by the sacrifice she had made of her own life. He would not think any more of what she had made him go through, or that horrible night at the theatre. When he thought of her, it would be as a wonderful tragic figure sent onto the world stage to show the supreme reality of love. 
a wonderful, tragic figure? Tears came to his eyes as he remembered her childlike look and winsome, fanciful ways and shy, tremulous grace. He brushed them away hastily and looked again at the picture. It felt that the time had really come for making his choice. Or had his choice already been made? Yes, life had already decided that for him. Life and his own infinite curiosity about life. Eternal youth, infinite passion, pleasures subtle and secret, wild joys and wilder sins. He was to have all of these things. The portrait was to bear the burden of his shame, that was all. A feeling of pain crept over him as he thought of the desecration that was in store for the fur face on this canvas. Once, in boyish mockery of Narcissus, he had kissed, or feigned to kiss, those painted lips that he now smiled so cruelly back at him. Morning after morning, he had sat before the portrait wondering at its beauty, almost enamoured at it, as it seemed to him at times. Was it the altar now with every mood in which he yielded? Was it the become monstrous and loathsome thing to be hidden away in the locked room, to be shut out from the sunlight that he'd so often touched to brighter gold the wavering wonder of his hair? Pity of it. Pity of it. For a moment he thought of praying that the horrible sympathy that existed between him and the picture might cease. It had changed in answer to a prayer. Perhaps an answer to a prayer might remain unchanged. And yet, who that knew anything about life would surrender the chance of remaining always young, however fantastic that chance might be, or with what fateful consequence it might be fraught? Besides, was it really under his control? Had it indeed been prayer that had produced this substitution? Might there not be some curious scientific reason for it all? If thought could exercise its influence upon a living organism, might not thought exercise an influence upon dead and inorganic things? Nay, without thought or conscious desire, might not things external to ourselves vibrate in unison with our moods and passions, Adam calling to Adam in secret love or strange affinity? But the reason was of no importance. He would never again tempt by a prayer any terrible power. If the picture was still alter, it was still alter. That was all. Why inquire too closely into it? For there would be a real pleasure in watching it. He'd be able to follow his mind into its secret places. His portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. As it revealed to him his own body, so it would reveal to him his own soul. And when winter came upon it, he would still be standing where spring trembles on the verge of summer. When the blood crept from his face, and left behind a pallid mask of chalk with leaden eyes, he would keep the glamour of boyhood. Not one blossom of his loveliness would ever fade. Not one pulse of his life would ever weaken. Like the gods of the Greeks, he would be strong and fleet and joyous. What did it matter what happened to the coloured image on the canvas? He would be safe. That was everything. He drew the screen back into its former place in front of the picture, smiling as he did so and passed into his bedroom, where his valet was already waiting for him. An hour later, he was at the opera, when Lord Henry was leaning over his chair. Chapter 9 As he was sitting at breakfast next morning, Basil Hallward was shown into the room. 
I'm so glad I found you, Dorian, he said gravely. I called last night, and they told me you were at the opera. Of course, I knew that was impossible. But I wish you left word where you'd really gone to. I passed a dreadful evening, half afraid that one tragedy might be followed by another. I think you might have telegraphed for me when you heard of it first. I read of it quite by chance in the late edition of The Globe that I picked up at the club. I came here at once and was miserable at not finding you. I can't tell you how heartbroken I am about the whole thing. I know what you must suffer. But where were you? Did you go down and see the girl's mother? For a moment I thought of following you there. They gave the address in the paper. Somewhere in Euston Road, isn't it? But I was afraid of intruding upon a sorrow that I could not lighten. That poor woman. What a state she must be in. And her only child too. What did she say about it all? My dear Basil, how do I know? Murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking terror-bored. Was at the opera? You should have come on there. I met Lady Gwendolen, Harry's sister, for the first time. We were in her box. She is perfectly charming, and Patty sang divinely. Don't talk about hard subjects. If one doesn't talk about a thing, it has never happened. It is simply an expression, as Harry says, that gives reality to things. I may mention that she was not the woman's only child. There is a son, a charming fellow, I believe. But he's not on the stage. He's a sailor or something. Now, tell me about yourself. What are you painting at the moment? You went to the opera? said Hallward, speaking very slowly and with a strained touch of pain in his voice. You went to the opera while Sybil Vane was lying dead in some sordid lodging. You could talk to me of other women being charming, and of Patty singing divinely, before the girl you loved has even the quiet of a grave to sleep in? There are horrors in store for that little white body of hers. Stop, Basil. I won't hear it, cried Dorian, leaping to his feet. You must not tell me such things. What's done is done, and what's past is past. You call yesterday the past? What's the actual lapse of time got to do with it? It's only a shallow people who require years to get rid of an emotion. A man who's a master of himself can end a sorrow as easily as he can invent a pleasure. I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them, to enjoy them, and to dominate them. Dorian, this is horrible. Something's changed you completely. You'd look exactly the same wonderful boy who, day after day, used to come down to my studio to sit for his picture. But you were simple, natural and affectionate then. You're the most unspoiled creature in the whole world. I don't even know what's come over you. Talk as if you've no heart, no pity in you. This is all Harry's influence. I can see that. The lad flushed up and going to the window looked out for a few moments onto the green flickering sunlash garden. I owe a great deal to Harry Basil, he said at last. More than I owe you. You only taught me to be vain. Well, I am punished for that, Dorian, or shall be some day. I don't know what you mean, Basil, he exclaimed, turning round. I don't know what you want. What do you want? I want the Dorian Gray I used to paint, said the artist sadly. Basil, said the lad, going over to him, putting his hand on his shoulder 
You have come too late. Yesterday, when I heard that Sybil Vane had killed herself. Killed herself? Good heavens, is there no doubt about that? cried Hallward, looking up at him with an expression of horror. My dear Basil, surely you don't think it was just a vulgar accident? Of course she killed herself. The elder man buried his face in his hands. Fearful, he muttered, and a shudder ran through him. No, said Dorian Gray. There is nothing fearful about it. It is one of the great romantic tragedies of the age. As a rule, people who act lead the most commonplace lives. They are good husbands or faithful wives or something tedious. You know what I mean. Middle-class virtue and all that kind of thing. How different Sybil was. She lived her finest tragedy, and she will always be a heroine. The last night she played, the night you saw her, she acted badly because she had known the reality of love. When she knew its unreality, she died, as Juliet might have died. She passed again into a sphere of art. There's something about the martyr of her. Her death is all the pathetic uselessness of martyrdom, all of the wasted beauty. But, as I was saying, you must not think that I have not suffered. If you come in yesterday at a particular moment, half past five, perhaps, or quarter to six, you would have found me in tears. Even Harry, who was here, had brought me the news. In fact, had no idea what I was going through. I suffered immensely, and then it passed away. I cannot repeat an emotion. No one can, except sentimentalists. And you're awfully unjust, Basil. You came down here to console me. And it's charming of you. You find me consoled and you're furious. How like a sympathetic person. You remind me of a story Harry told me once about a certain philanthropist who spent 20 years of his life in trying to get some grievance redressed or some unjust law altered. I forget exactly what it was. Finally, he succeeded, and nothing could have exceeded his disappointment. He had absolutely nothing to do. Almost died of ennui and became a confirmed misanthrope. Besides, my dear old Basil, if you really wanted to console me, teach me rather to forget what has happened or to see it from a proper artistic point of view. Was it not Godier who used to write about the La Consolation des Arts? I remember picking up a little vellum-covered book in your studio one day and chanting on that delightful phrase. Well, I'm not like that young man you told me of when we were down at Marlowe together. The young man who used to say that yellow satin could console one for all of the miseries of life. I love beautiful things that one can touch and handle. Old brocades, green bronzes, lacquer work, carved ivories, exquisite surroundings, luxury, pomp. There's so much to be got from all of these. But the artistic temperament that they create, or that they re reveal, is still more to me. To become the spectator of one's old life, as Harry says, is to escape the suffering of life. I know you're surprised at my talking to you like this. You've not realised how much I've developed. I was a schoolboy when you knew me. I am a man now. I have new passions, new thoughts, new ideas. I'm different, but you must not like me any less. I am changed, but you must always be my friend. Of course, I'm very fond of Harry, but I do know that you're better than he is. You're not stronger. You're too afraid of life, but you are better. And how happy we used to be together. Don't leave me, Basil. 
don't quarrel with me. I am what I am. There's nothing more to be said. The painter felt strangely moved. The lad was infinitely dear to him, and his personality had been the great turning point in his art. He could not bear the idea of reproaching him anymore. After all, his indifference was probably merely a mood that would pass away. There was so much in him that was good, so much in him that was noble. Well, Dorian, he said at length, with a sad smile, I won't speak to you again about this horrible thing after today. I only trust that your name won't be mentioned in the connection with it. The inquest is to take place this afternoon. Have they summoned you? Dorian shook his head, and a look of annoyance passed over his face at the mention of the word inquest. There was something so crude and vulgar about everything of the kind. They don't know my name, he answered. But surely she did. Only my Christian name. And I'm quite sure she never mentioned it to anyone. She told me once that they were all rather curious to learn who I was, and that she invariably told them my name was Prince Charming. It was pretty of her. You must do me a drawing of Sybil, Basil. I should like to have something more of her than the memory of a few kisses and some broken, pathetic words. I'll try and do something, Dorian, if that would please you. But you must come and sit with me again. I can't get on without you. I can never sit to you again, Basil. It's impossible, he exclaimed, starting back. The painter stared at him. My dear boy, what nonsense, he cried. Do you mean to say you don't like what I did of you? Where is it? Why have you pulled the screen in front of it like that? Let me look at it. It is the best thing I've ever done. Do take the screen away, Dorian. It is simply disgraceful of your servant hiding in my work like that. I found the room looked quite different as I came in. My servant had nothing to do with it, Basil. You don't imagine I let him arrange my room for me, do you? He settles my flowers for me sometimes, but that is all. No, I did it myself. The light was too strong on the portrait. Too strong? Surely not, my dear fellow. It is an admirable place for it. Let me see. And Hallward walked towards the corner of the room. A cry of terror broke from Dorian's lips, and he rushed between the painter and the screen. Basil, he said, looking very pale. You must look at it. I don't wish you to. Not look at my own work? You're not serious. Shouldn't I look at it? exclaimed Hallward, laughing. If you try to look at it, Basil, on my word of honour, I will never speak to you again as long as I live. I'm quite serious. I don't offer any explanation, and you're not to ask for any. But remember, if you touch this screen, everything is over between us. Hallward was thunderstruck. He looked at Dorian Gray in an absolute amazement. He'd never seen him like this before. The lad was actually pallid with rage. His hands were clenched, and the pupils of his eyes were like discs of blue fire. He was trembling all over. Dorian, don't speak. But what is the matter? Of course I won't look at it if you don't want me to, he said rather coldly, turning on his heel going towards the window. But really, it seems rather absurd that I shouldn't be able to see my own work, especially as I'm going to exhibit it in Paris in autumn. She'll probably have to give it another coat of varnish before that, so I have to see it someday. Why not today? To exhibit it? 
You want to exhibit it? exclaimed Dorian Gray, a strange sense of terror creeping over him. Was the word going to be shown as secret? Were people to gape at the mystery of his life? That was impossible. Something, didn't know what, had to be done at once. Yes, I don't suppose you would object to that. Georges Petit is going to collect all my best pictures for a special exhibition in the Rue de Sies, which will open in the first week in October. The portrait will only be away for a month. I should think you could easily spare it for that time. In fact, you're sure to be out of time. And if you keep it as always behind the screen, you can't care much about it. Dorian Gray passed a hand over his forehead. There were beads of perspiration there. He felt that he was on the brink of a horrible danger. You told me a month ago that you would never exhibit it, he cried. Why have you changed your mind? You people who go in for being consistent have just as many moods as others have. The only difference is that your moods are rather meaningless. You kind of forgotten that you assured me most solemnly that nothing in the world would induce you to send it to any exhibition. You told Harry exactly the same thing. He stopped suddenly, and a gleam of light came into his eyes. He remembered that Lord Henry had said to him once, half seriously and half in jest. I want to have a strange quarter of an hour. Get puzzled to tell you why you won't exhibit your picture. He told me why you wouldn't, and it was a revelation to me. Yes, perhaps Basil too has the secret. He would ask him and try. Basil, he said, coming over quite close, looking him straight in the face. We have each of us a secret. Let me know yours, I shall tell you mine. What was your reason for refusing to exhibit my picture? The painter shuddered in spite of himself. Dorian, if I told you, you might like me less than you do. And he would certainly laugh at me. And I could not bury doing either of those two things. If you wish me never to look at your picture again, I am content. I always have you to look at. If you wish the best work I have ever done to be hidden from the world, then I am satisfied. Your friendship is dearer to me than any fame or reputation. No, Basil. You must tell me, insisted Dorian Gray. I think I have the right to know. His feeling of terror had passed away and curiosity had taken its place. He was determined to find out Basil Hallward's mystery. Let us sit down then, Dorian, said the painter, looking troubled. Just let us sit down. And answer me one question. Have you noticed in the picture something curious? Something that probably at first didn't strike you, but revealed itself to you suddenly? Basil, cried the lad, clutching the arms of his chair with trembling hands and gazing at him with wild, startled eyes. I see you did. No, don't speak. Wait till you hear what I have to say. Dorian, from the moment I met you, your personality has the most extraordinary influence over me. I was dominated, soul, brain, and power by you. You became to me the visible incarnation of the unseen ideal whose memory haunts us artists like an exquisite dream. I worshipped you. I grew jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. When you were away from me, you were still present in my art. 
course I'll never let anyone know anything about this. It would have been impossible. You wouldn't have understood it. I hardly understand it myself. I do know that I've seen perfection face to face. And the world had become a wonderful to my eyes. Too wonderful, perhaps. For in such mad worships there is peril. The peril of losing them. No less than the peril of keeping them. Weeks and weeks went on, and I grew more and more absorbed in you. Then came a new development. I had drawn you as Paris in dainty armour, and as Adonis with huntsman's cloak and polished boar spear. Crowned with the heavy lotus blossoms, you had sat on the prow of Adrian's barge, gazing at the green turbid Nile. You had leant over the still pool of some Greek woodland, and seen in the water silent silver the marvel of your own face. And it had all been what art should be, unconscious, ideal, and remote. One day, a faithful day I sometimes think, I determined to paint a wonderful portrait of you as you actually are. Not in the costume of dead ages, but in your own dress, in your own time. Whether it was the realism of the method or the mere wonder of your own personality, thus directly presented to me without Mr. Veal, I cannot tell. But I know that as I worked at it, every flake and film of colour seemed to me to reveal my secret. I grew afraid that others would know of my idolatry. I felt, Dorian, that I told too much, that I put too much of myself into it. That it was that I resolved never to allow the picture to be exhibited. You were a little annoyed, but then you did not realise all that it had meant to me. Harry, to whom I talked about it, laughed at me, but I did not mind that. When the picture was finished and I sat alone with it, I felt that it was right. Well, after a few days the thing left my studio, and as soon as I got rid of the intolerable fascination of its presence, it seemed to me that I'd been foolish in imagining that I had seen anything in it, more than you were extremely good-looking, and that I could paint even now I cannot help but feel that it's a mistake to think that the passion one feels in creation is ever really shown in the work one creates. Art is always more abstract than we fancy. Form and colour tell us of form and colour, that is all. It often seems to me that art conceals the artist far more completely than it ever reveals him. And so when I got this offer from Paris, I determined to make your portrait the principal thing in my exhibition. It never occurred to me that you would refuse see now that you were right. The picture cannot be shown. You mustn't be angry with me, Dorian, for what I've told you. As I said to Harry, once, you are made to be worshipped. Dorian Gray drew a long breath. The colour came back to his cheeks and a smile played about his lips. The peril was over. He was safe for the time. Yet he could not help but feel infinite pity for the painter who had made the strange confession to him, and wondered if he himself would ever be so dominated by the personality of a friend. Lord Henry had the charm of being very dangerous, but that was all. He was too clever and too cynical to really be fond of. Would there ever be someone who could fill him with a strange idolatry? Was that one of the things that life had in store for him? It is extraordinary to me, Dorian, said Hallward, that you should have seen this in the portrait. Did you really see it? 
I saw everything in it, he answered. Something that seemed to me very curious. Well, you don't mind my looking at the thing now. Dorian shook his head. You'll not, not ask me that, Basil. I could not possibly let you stand in front of that picture. You will someday, surely. Never. Well, perhaps you're right. And now, goodbye, Dorian. You've been the one person in my life who really influenced my art. Whatever I have done that is good, I owe to you. Don't you know what it cost me to tell you all that I've just told you? My dear Basil, said Dorian, what have you told me? Simply that you felt that you admired me too much. It's not even a compliment. It was not intended to be a compliment. It was a confession. Now that I've made it, something seems to have gone out of me. Perhaps one should never put one's worship into words. It was a very disappointing confession. Why? What did you expect, Dorian? You didn't see anything else in the picture, did you? There's nothing else to see. No, there is nothing else to see. Why do you ask? But you mustn't talk about worship. It is foolish. You and I are friends, Basil, and it must always remain so. You've got Harry, said the painter, sadly. Oh, Harry, cried the lad with a ripple of laughter. Harry spends his days in saying what is incredible, and his evenings in doing what is improbable. It's just the sort of life I would like to lead. But, still, I don't think I would go to Harry if I were in trouble. I would sooner go to you, Basil. You'll sit to me again? Impossible. You spoil my life as an artist by refusing, Dorian. No man has ever come across two ideal things. For if you come across one. I can't explain it to you, Basil, but I must never sit to you again. There's something fatal about a portrait. It has a life of its own. I'll come and have tea with you, and that'll be just as pleasant. Pleasanter for you, I'm afraid, murmured Hallward regretfully. And now, goodbye. I'm sorry you won't let me look at the picture again, but that can't be helped. Quite understand what you feel about it. As he left the room, Dorian Gray smiled to himself. How little he knew of true reason. And how strange it was that, instead of having been forced to reveal his own secret, he had succeeded, almost by chance, in wrestling a secret from his friend. How much that strange confession explained to him. The painter's absurd fits of jealousy, his wild devotion, his curious reticences. He understood them all now, and he felt sorry. There seemed to him to be something tragic in a friendship so coloured by romance. He sighed and touched the bell. The portrait must be hidden away at all costs. He couldn't run such a risk of a discovery again. It had been mad of him to have allowed the thing to remain, even for an hour, in a room to which any of his friends had access. Chapter 10 When his servant entered, he looked at him steadfastly and wondered if he had thought of peering behind the screen. The man was quite impassive and waited for his orders. Dorian lit a cigarette and walked over to the glass and glanced into it. He could see the reflection of Victor's face perfectly. 
was like a placid mask of servility. There was nothing to be afraid of there. Yet, he had thought it best to be on his own guard. Speaking very slowly, he told him to tell the housekeeper that he wanted to see her, then to go down to the frame maker and ask him to send two of his men round at once. It seemed to him that as the man left the room, his eyes wandered in the direction of the screen. Or was that merely his own fancy? After a few moments, in her black dress, with old-fashioned thread mittens on her wrinkled hands, Mrs. Leaf bustled into the library. He asked her for the key of the schoolroom. The old schoolroom, Mrs. Dorian, she exclaimed. Why, it's full of dust. I must get it arranged, put straight before you go into it. It's not fit for you to see, sir. It's not fit indeed. I don't want it put straight, Leaf. I only want the key. Well, sir, you'll be covered by cobwebs if you go into it. Why? It hadn't been opened for nearly five years now. Not since his lordship died. He winced at the mention of his grandfather. He had hateful memories of him. That does not matter, he answered. I simply want to see the place. That is all. Give me the key. Well, here is the key, sir, said the old lady, going over the contents of her bunch with the tremulously uncertain hands. Here's the key. I'll have it off the bunch in a moment. But you don't think of living up there, sir? Are you so comfortable already here? No, no, he cried petulantly. Thank you, Leif, that'll do. She lingered for a few moments, and was garrulous over some detail of the household. He sighed and told her to manage things as she thought best. She left the room, wreathed in smiles. As the door closed, Dorian put the key in his pocket and looked around the room. His eye fell on the large purple satin covered it heavily embroidered with gold, a splendid piece of late 17th century Venetian work that his grandfather had found in a convent near Bologna. Yes, they'll serve to wrap the dreadful thing in. It had perhaps served often as a pal for the dead and now it was to hide something that had a corruption of its own, worse than the corruption of death itself, something that would breed horrors and yet never die. The worm was to the corpse, his sins would be to the painted image on that canvas. They would mar its beauty and eat away its grace. They would defile it and make it shameful, and yet the thing would still live on. It would always be alive. He shuddered, and for a moment he regretted that he had not told Basil the true reason why he wished to hide the picture away. Basil would have helped him to resist Lord Henry's influence, the still more poisonous influencers that came for his own temperament. The love that he bore him, for it was really love, had nothing in it that was not noble and intellectual. It was not that mere physical admiration of beauty that is born in the senses and dies when the senses tire. It was such love as Michelangelo had known, Montaigne, and Winkleman, and even Shakespeare himself. Yes, Basil could have saved him, but it was too late now. The past could always be annihilated. Regret, denial, or forgetfulness could do that. But the future was inevitable. There were passions in him that would find their terrible outlet, dreams that could make the shadow of their real evil. He took up the couch, the great purple and gold texture that covered it, and holding it in his hands, passed behind the screen. Was the face on the canvas viler than before? 
seemed that it was unchanged to him, and yet his loathing of it was intensified. Gold hair, blue eyes, rose-red lips, they were all there. It was simply the expression that had altered. That was horrible in its cruelty. Compared to what he saw in it of censure or rebuke, how shallow Basil's reproaches about Sybil Vane had been. How shallow and of what little account. His own soul was looking out at him from the canvas and calling him to judgment. A look of pain came across him and he flung the rich pal over the pitcher. As he did so, a knock came to the door. He passed out as his servant entered. Persons are here, monsieur. He felt that the man must be got rid of at once. He mustn't be allowed to know where the picture was being taken to. There was something sly about him, and he had thoughtful, treacherous eyes. Sitting down at the writing table, he scribbled a note to Lord Henry, asking him to send him around something to read, and reminding him that they were to meet at 8.15 that evening. Wait for an answer, he said, handing it to him, and show the men in here. In two or three minutes there was another knock, and Mr. Hubbard himself, the celebrated frame-maker of South Aldley Street, came with a somewhat rough-looking young assistant. Mr. Hubbard was a florid, red-whiskered little man, whose admiration for art was considerably tempered by his impenuity of some of the artists who had dealt with him. As a rule, he never left the shop. He waited for people to come to him. But he always made an exception in favour of Dorian Gray. There was something about Dorian that charmed everybody. It was a pleasure even to see him. What can I do for you, Mr. Gray? He said, rubbing his fat, freckled hands. I thought I would do myself the honour of coming around in person. I've just got a beauty of a frame, sir. Picked it up at a seal. Old Florentine. Came from Fontil, I believe. Admirably suited for a religious subject, Mr. Gray. I'm so sorry to have given yourself the trouble of coming round, Mr. Hubbard. I shall certainly drop in and look at the frame, though I don't want to go much at present for religious art. Today, I only want a picture carried to the top of the house for me. It's rather heavy, so I thought I would ask you to lend me a couple of your men. Oh, no trouble at all, Mr. Gray. I'm delighted to be of any service to you. Which is the work of art, sir? This, replied Dorian, moving the screen back. Can you move it? Covering and all, just as it is. I don't want it to get scratched going upstairs. There'll be no difficulty, sir, said the genial frame maker, beginning with the aid of his assistant to unhook the picture from the long brass chains by which it was suspended. And now, where shall we carry it to, Mr. Gray? I will show you the way, Mr. Hubbard, if you'll kindly follow me. Or perhaps you'd better go on first. I'm afraid that it is right at the top of the house. We'll go up by the front staircase as it is wider. He held the door open for them and they passed out into the hall and began the ascent. The elaborate character of the frame had made the picture extremely bulky, and now and then, in spite of the ubiquitous protests of Mr. Hubbard, he had the true tradesman's spirited dislike of seeing a gentleman do anything useful. Dorian put his hand to it so as to help them. This is something of a load to carry, sir, gasped the little man when they reached the top landing and he wiped his shiny forehead. I am afraid it is rather heavy, murmured Dorian, as he unlocked the door and opened into the room that was keep for him the curious secret of his life and hide his soul from the eyes of men. He'd not entered the place for more than four years, not, indeed, 
since he had first used it as a playroom when he was a child, and then as a study when he grew somewhat older. It was a large, well-proportioned room, which had been specially built by the last Lord Kelso for the use of the little grandson whom, for a strange likeness to his mother, and also for other reasons, he had always hated and desired to keep at a distance. It appeared to Dorian to have but little changed. There was a huge Italian casome, with its fantastically painted panels and its tarnished gilt mouldings, in which he had so often hidden himself as a boy. There, the satinwood bookcase filled with its dog-eared schoolbooks. On the wall behind it, it was hanging the same ragged Flemish tapestry where a faded king and queen were playing chess in the garden, where a company of hawkers rode by carrying hooded birds on their gauntleted wrists. How well he remembered it all. Every moment of his lonely childhood came back to him as he looked round. He recalled the stainless purity of his boyish life, and it seemed horrible to him that it was in here that the fatal portrait was to be hidden away. How little he had thought, in those dead days, of all that was in store for him. But there was no other place in the house so secure from prying eyes as this. He had the key, and no one else could enter it. Beneath the purple pall, the face painted on the canvas could grow bestial, sodden and unclean. What did it matter? No one could see it. He himself would not see it. Why should he watch the hideous corruption of his own soul? He'd kept his youth, and that was enough. Besides, might not his nature grow finer after all? There is no reason in the future should be so full of shame. Some love might come across his life and purify him, shield him from those sins that seem to be already stirring in his spirit and in flesh. Those curious, unpictured sins whose very mystery lent them their subtlety and their charm. Perhaps, someday, the cruel look might have passed away from the scarlet, sensitive mouth, and it might show the world Basil Hallward's masterpiece. No, that was impossible. Hour by hour and week by week, the thing upon the canvas was growing old. It might escape the hideousness of sin, but the hideousness of age was in store for it yet. The cheeks would become hollow or flaccid. Yellow crow's feet would creep around the fading eyes and make them horrible. The hair would lose its brightness. The mouth would gape or droop. It would be foolish or gross, as the mouths of old men are. There would be the wrinkled throat, cold blue-veined hands, the twisted body. And he remembered the grandfather who had been so stern to him in his boyhood. Pitcher had to be sealed. There was no help for it. Bring it in, Mr. Hubbard, please, he said wearily, turning round. I'm sorry I kept you so long. I was thinking of something else. Always glad to have a rest, Mr. Gray, answered the frame maker, who was still gasping for breath. Where shall we put it, sir? Oh, anywhere. Here, this'll do. I don't want to have it hung up. Just lean it against the wall. Thanks. Might one look at the work of art, sir? Dorian started. Would not interest you, Mr. Hubbard, he said, keeping his eye on the man. He felt ready to leap upon him and fling him to the ground if he dared to lift the gorgeous hanging that concealed the secret of his life. I shan't trouble you any more now, and I'm much obliged for your kindness in coming round. Not at all, not at all, Mr. Gray. Ever ready to do anything for you, sir. 
Mr. Hubbard trampled downstairs, followed by assistant. He glanced back at Dorian with a look of shy wonder in his rough, uncomely face. He had never seen anyone so marvellous. When the sound of their footsteps had died away, Dorian locked the door and put the key in his pocket. He felt safe now. No one would ever look upon this horrible thing. No eye but his would ever see his shame. On reaching the library, he found that it was just after five o'clock and that the tea had already been brought up. On a little table of dark perfumed wood thickly encrusted with nacre, a present from Lady Radley, the guardian's wife. A pretty professional invalid, who had spent the preceding winter in Cairo, was lying a note from Lord Henry. Beside it was a book bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn and the edges soiled. A copy of the third edition of St. James's Gazette, which had been placed on the tea tray. It was evident that Victor had returned. He'd wondered if he'd met the men in the hall as they were leaving the house, and had wormed out of them what they'd been doing. He was sure to be missing the picture. Had no doubt missed it already, when he'd been lying about tea things. The screen had not been set back, and the blank space was visible on the wall. Perhaps some night he might find him creeping upstairs and trying to force the door of the room. It was a horrible thing to have a spy in one's house. He'd heard of rich men who'd been blackmailed all their lives by some servant who'd read a letter, or overheard a conversation, or picked up a card with an address. Found beneath a pillow a weathered flower or shred of crumpled lace. He sighed, and having poured himself out some tea, opened Lord Henry's note. It was simply to say that he'd sent him round the evening paper, and a book that might be of interest to him, and that he'd be at the club at 8.15. He opened the St. James's languidly and looked through it. A red pencil mark on the fifth page caught his eye. It drew attention to the following paragraph. Inquest on an actress. An inquest was held this morning at the Bell Tavern, Hoxton Road by Mr. Danby, the district coroner on the body of Sibylvine, a young actress recently engaged at the Royal Theatre in Holborn. A verdict of death by misadventure was returned. Considerable sympathy was expressed for the mother of the deceased, who was greatly affected during the giving of her own evidence, and that of Dr. Beryl, who had made the post-mortem examination of the deceased. He frowned, and, tearing the paper in two, went across the room and flung the pieces away. How ugly it all was, and how horribly real ugliness made things. He'd felt a little annoyed with Lord Henry for having sent him the report, and it was certainly stupid of him to have marked it with red pencil. Victor might have read it. The man knew more than enough English for that. Perhaps he had read it, and had begun to suspect something. And yet, what did it matter? What had Dorian Gray to do with Sibylvine's death? There was nothing to fear. Dorian Gray had not killed her. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. What was it, he wondered. He went towards the little pearl-coloured octagonal stand that had always looked to him like the work of some strange Egyptian bee that wrought in silver, and taken up the volume, flung himself into an armchair, and began to turn over the leaves. After a few minutes, he became absorbed. It was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him that in exquisite raiment to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. Things that he had dimly dreamed of were suddenly made real to him. 
things of which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. It was a novel without a plot, with only one character, being indeed simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian who had spent his life trying to realise in the 19th century all of the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own. And to sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the word spirit had ever passed. Loving for their mere artificiality, these renunciations that men have untimely called virtue. As much as these natural rebellions these wise men still call sin. The style in which it was written was a curious jeweled style, vivid and obscure all at once, full of argo and of archisms, technical expressions and elaborate paraphrases that characterises the work of some finest artists of the French school of the symbolists. There were in it metaphors as monstrous as orchids and as subtle in colour. The life of the senses was described in terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odour of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the senses, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced the mind of the lad as he passed from chapter to chapter, a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming, that made him unconscious of the falling day and the creeping shadows. Cloudless and pierced by one solitary star, a copper-green sky gleamed through the windows. He read on by way and light till he could read no more. Then after his valet had reminded him several times of the lateness of the hour, he got up and going into the next room placed the book on the little Florentine table that always stood by his bedside and began to dress for dinner. It was almost nine o'clock before he reached the club, where he found Lord Henry sitting alone in the morning room, looking very much bored. I'm so sorry, Harry, he cried, but really, it's entirely your fault. That book you sent me so fascinated me that I forgot how the time was going. Yes, I thought you would like it, replied his host, rising from his chair. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There is a great difference. Ah, you've discovered that, murmured Lord Henry. And they passed into the dining room. I think leaving Dorian Gray there, wandering off to dinner, alternating in his thoughts of morality and immunity, it's probably a good place for us to leave our adventure tonight. There were some words in there that I didn't even recognise myself. I don't know what other secrets we can find in continuing with the story, but I refuse to leave it unfinished. So we'll pick this up again in the future. As always, guest room's ready for you. Downstairs, down the corridor, second door on the left. Talia and Nisa have been very active tonight. Did you hear them singing? I think there's a full moon coming. No doubt they'll check on you at some stage as you rest. Good night, my friend. I hope you sleep well. You deserve that. <laughs>